Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Aaron Lane, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. You've written this book about cultural scripts, social scripts around motherhood and parenting, uh, especially within the Christian tradition in America. You're pushing back on some stuff, I think, very helpfully. First of all, what's the book called? Remind me. The book is called Someone Other Than a Mother, Flipping the Scripts on a Woman's Purpose and Making Meaning Beyond Motherhood. You mentioned early on that you grew up Catholic, and so your options were basically mother or mother superior, which I think is a very great turn of phrase. What does that mean? Yeah. So as I was presented with it, I could either marry a man and mother my own children, or I could marry God, so to speak, and mother the world's children. And so those two roles, you are either a biological mother or in more crass terms, a real mother, or you are a spiritual mother 
which means you still really love children and really want to just give your life to caregiving. And, and I want to say, and this book is a story about what happens when you find yourself somewhere in between those two options. How can that be a good life too? And that is why early on when my husband and I partnered and felt like we don't think we're really called to reproduce in the literal sense of the word, <laughs> we began calling ourselves or more realistically, I began calling us child-free for the common good. And it was this idea that the child-free, those who opt out of being mother or mother superior, get pigeonholed as selfish, shallow, and self-absorbed, that we put so much criticism on what they are choosing to be free from, that we don't actually celebrate all of the things they are free for. And I did see it as a calling akin to the priesthood, where I was going to forsake a particular commitment, children of my quote own, so that I could be available to my community. That was the original idea um, was to give ourselves a priestly title and to celebrate that there are actually things when you limit one life choice that actually open you to be able to attend to other choices and people and communities in life. And so that phrase was one way to, I think, try to appease some of my critics, but also try to remind myself that no, I'm not choosing this to abdicate responsibility. I'm choosing this because I feel responsible for a different set of commitments. Let me guess though, uh, that in your Protestant experience, claiming that child-free for the common good, uh, taking a kind of a priestly mantle for you and your husband, uh, I'm going to assume that that didn't go over super well. Oh, nobody gave a shit. <laughs> like, good for you. I went to divinity school at Duke. And shortly after I graduated, I found myself following a, a classmate who was becoming ordained. And she was pastoring at a particularly conservative evangelical church. And so I followed her to this church. And whenever she wasn't preaching, the full-time pastor, um, the head honcho, um, would inevitably go off on some sort of tangent um, about children being treated like hobbies in today's world or birth control being a mode of playing God. And I just remember thinking, one, isn't that kind of what we're called to do, like play God? I mean, that is literally Christians as little Christ, right? Like, yes, yes, I should be trying to make my decisions and pattern my life a little bit on what I think Jesus might do, right? You remember the WWJD days? Like, yes, I actually am looking at scripture and I'm looking at Jesus's life, who, as far as we know, also opted out of marriage and children, but again, willfully celibate and realizing that, yeah, there just wasn't an imagination for how Jesus's life could be used as an exemplar for the child-free life. Instead, there was a, a continual assumption that the child-free were gluttons or making choices only for their own convenience rather than for community, which I'd say there's lots of arguments to be made for both sides. I want to get this in here near the top. The difference between a binary claim and a bell curve claim. I imagine you know what I'm talking about when I say that, but let me just explain it for the listener. So a binary choice would be it's one or the other. It's the light switch is on or it's off. God made them male and female often gets interpreted in more conservative spaces as 
every individual who is born, God has designated either male or female. That doesn't budge. It doesn't change. That is a binary claim. I don't think there are very many binaries in the world. What I do think there are a lot of is bell curve distributions. A bell curve would say something like, most people will fall near the middle of the bell curve distribution on X or Y. And that distinction for me is has become more and more and more and more important. I think it is a good way to argue against overt binary claims that don't hold up to evidence. For instance, I think the very presence of intersex people gives the lie to the binary claim about gender, gender and sex. But at the same time, to say something like gender is over, gender is entirely societally, socially constructed, I think doesn't hold up either. And a bell curve model sort of gets at the truth better and sort of critiques those far left and far right claims, for lack of a better term. And the first thing that popped into my head was one of the ways in which I make sense of gender in the book, because sociologically, women who opt out parenting on purpose tend to hold less traditional gender beliefs. Right. And so the theory I'm holding, because I hold less traditional gender beliefs, is, yeah, maybe there is something that just felt like I didn't have an affinity with people who were choosing motherhood or relishing motherhood. But also, maybe there is something about my gender identity being what I call low femme or or more centered Mm -hmm. that has an imagination for things that are more historically male or more historically not gendered. Yeah. And the way I make sense of that being okay theologically, because I always want to be okay theologically, I think that's the Orthodox Catholic in me. People are like, why do you even care to make sense of it theologically? I'm yeah. Like, I don't know. I just do. I just do. Like, <laughs> it I makes want- you a good guest for you have permission. <laughs> Great. Um, and one of the ways I learned how to do this in a way that was meaningful for me is through this literary device called merism. And I talk about this in a footnote in the book, but merism is the idea that there are poles and continuums. So this is where my mind went when you started talking about the bell curve and that you could argue there is merism as a literary device, which essentially just means we're going to name the two poles, but we are going to concede that there is a lot happening between the two poles. And so Jewish scholars look at the creation account in the first chapter of Genesis and say, merism is at play from the very beginning. When it says God created night and day, God also created dusk and dawn. When it says God created fish and birds, God also created reptiles and like the bewildering platypus, right? Like these aren't the only categories, but these are the the poles. And even in our normal everyday language, we still use merism. So for instance, when you say I searched high and low, you also search like chest height, right, right? Right. Yeah. And so this is how I understand male and female, that these are naming two realities um, that are real, um, that have real differentiation. And there is lots between, and I would even argue beyond, between and beyond our understanding. And so I find myself, like I said, somewhere between male and female Somewhere between um, feeling like a mother 
and feeling like a child-free person. But my story, starting out child-free and then surprise, becoming a foster parent and later adoptive parent, I think I'm just comfortable being in between poles rather than squarely fitting in one or the other. What I'm talking about in terms of a bell curve distribution that in the middle, you sort of have most people clumped on any particular concept. And the further out you get from that middle, you just have fewer people, but there's still going to be people there. Holds very well alongside like a, yeah, like a continuum model. So if, you know, all the way masculine is a one and all the way feminine is a 10. Interestingly, those definitions do change societally. But let's just take the most common, most agreed upon, whatever, across cultures. Like, I'm like a three, you know, like I, I'm i not a five. I'm not right in the middle, but I'm not a one. I'm not like the manliest dude in the world. You know, I like working with my mind more than my hands. Um, the joke with my wife and I is always like, if I was born in 10,000 BC, I would either have become the leader or I'd be fucking dead. Like I, <laughs> I wouldn't have survived actually materially contributing. I, maybe I could have figured out some method for better hunting or something like that, but then I wouldn't have done the hunting, you know? So I like continuums a lot as a, as a sort of sociopolitical moderate who actually believes that moderation is a really important virtue. Uh, I love the idea of a continuum and not having to be ideologically pure conservative or ideologically pure liberal uh, right. to, to fight the other side or whatever. And I think the, the false equivalence that traditional woman equals good mother is very problematic for those like me who don't feel like a traditionally good woman, but could really relish parenting, could be really good at it, could find it really meaningful, could make it their own. Also, mothers who maybe do feel like traditional women can feel shamed um, that that is too high a pedestal to remain on, that when there are those deviant moments or expressions or identities, that it feels incompatible with motherhood because motherhood has so historically been associated with woman and not just woman, but good woman. And who gets to say who's a good woman in the white Western world? Men and usually married men. And usually married men with money. So that's the part that I want to trouble. Yeah. And say, look, there are people who can be great mothers who aren't great women. <laughs> and there can be people who are women who are not mothering and still doing big, beautiful work in the world. And what else do we need to know about your story? The inciting incident for my story was when the adoption became final. Very quickly, very unexpectedly. And I got so many thank yous and so many backpats and so many casseroles. Hmm. And I felt like people had never been so excited about my life as when I became a legal, officially recognized parent in my community. Hmm. And while that felt good for like a hot second, soon the tender sheet started to push through. And I was like, what was so inspire, uninspiring about my life before? What if I don't even know that this is something I want to be celebrated for? And again, because we became parents via adoption and we're white and we're Christian, there's a whole problematic history right. um, of us getting celebrated for mothering and fathering in a way that our girls 
family was not, and not just not celebrated, but not um, funded or supported by the government mm -hmm. with nearly as many resources as we were. Right. I mean, we still to this day get payments every month. They call it reimbursement. You get a monthly check to take care of children, um, children that are not your own children. And I think how many people would say that we're riding the system, but if our girls' birth parents had gotten that money before needing to put their children into foster care, oh, they would be drains on the system, not saints. They wouldn't be praised. They wouldn't get a pat on the back. They wouldn't be thanked for yeah. entering into the communal project of parenthood. So all that's to say, it just made me really mad and really sad. And then want to just like hole up in a, like a dumpster of research um, and figure out <laughs> what was happening that a life before mothering was so under celebrated and what was happening that a life after mothering was so venerated. Was it helping that, that pattern or was it, as I suspected, bad for both moms and non-moms because it wasn't, again, it was a binary and it wasn't accounting for the full human experience. Listeners will know that a dumpster of research is like my love language. So Excellent. I'm really excited to ask you about that. <laughs> what was at the bottom of the dumpster? Did you, you know, what'd you first find? Well, that's a great question. It started with the first chapter, your biological clock is ticking. And every chapter is a, another shitty script that mm -hmm. women have been handed. And they're not shitty because they're not sometimes true for people. And again, I would love yeah. to hear, I'm so eager to hear about which of these scripts have been true for you and have, and have landed and felt meaningful um, and felt like a way that you and your partner have made sense of your purpose in the world. It's not that these scripts aren't true, although some of them, there is no biological clock. I can talk right. about that. Some of them are more patent lies than others, but some of them are just incomplete truths or some right. of them are just not true for everyone. And mm -hmm. to, to say them as if they are universals is really damaging, damaging to those that don't fit and can be shaming, like I said earlier, to those who perhaps do fit, but maybe not forever, maybe not for always. And so I sat down with my friend Janelle, who I dedicated the book to. And I was like, have you ever heard a clock ticking? And she was like, no. And I was like, are you worried about that? Because I'm late, I'm like mid to late thirties as I'm writing this book. So a lot of the people I'm in conversation with are at that point, if they don't already have children, or even if they do, and they're wondering about, should they have a second or a third? They're like hearing this message that time is running out um, and they're going to want it. So even if they don't want it now, like try to procure something try to to store up for winter winter is coming in the mm -hmm. form of <laughs> menopause right yeah and she was like no i don't i don't i'm not concerned my only concern is maybe it's broken maybe i'm never going to hear it and not regret not having children maybe i'm just a broken woman and mm. i was like well that's fucked yeah and so that's where i started with the scientific research is there a biological imperative to reproduce no, not individually. There's obviously, you could make an argument for an evolutionary one that our species wants to survive and our species wants to continue. But again, as you said, probably most people will <laughs> be in the middle of that bell curve. And then there are going to be some people on the edges who don't have that imperative, don't 
don't feel what I think we say when we mean biological clock is we mean the desire. We mean an inexplicable desire or urging or longing. And what I learned from the research and where I started was what is the biology? There is no ticking clock. There's merely a reproductive window that women have. And of course, men have. And two, these desires are mysterious and personal and sometimes appear and sometimes don't and sometimes are untimely and sometimes are right on time. And you can't make assumptions simply on the fact of body parts about what you want and what you are made for. So we're into the book now. Basically, you have nine of these cultural or social scripts. These are um, really their aphorisms. They're like less than a sentence. They're phrases, almost catchphrases that people tend to repeat as if they know that they're true. They become like memes in the Richard Dawkins sense, like they spread across society because they capture things accurately enough. And then they, they gain the appearance of truth if enough people repeat them often, right? Is that a pretty good sense of what we're doing, dealing with here? That sounds great. Okay. So you got nine of them and we're going to go through some of them, but not all nine. And one of them is your biological clock is ticking. So I love that you talked about your friend wondering if she was broken because the first fertility doctor that we tried to work with is actually this woman who's an author from Seattle. Her name is Laura Shaheen. And she is widely celebrated and known in the fertility world. And her book is called Not Broken, An Approachable Guide to Miscarriage and Recurrent Pregnancy Loss. Uh, and I'm not going to share too many details of my wife's experience uh, because that's her story and not mine. Other than that, we did have recurrent pregnancy loss and we sought out fertility treatment and now we have our son, Soren. So the, those basics I'm fine sharing. And basically that idea of not broken is powerful, right? If we attach theological meaning by which I mean sort of God designed it this way, if we, if we sort of over indicate God's design, in my opinion, over indicate it, that's when we're going to start to feel shame with an infinite gloss over it, right? because God does not make mistakes or whatever the other cultural scripts are or little cliches that you want to combine in there, right? That's when the real deep shame can get in there because, well, did God make a mistake when God made me? And that's where the binary hurts and the bell curve or the continuum, I think, can be quite freeing. So maybe let's yes. start there. So no scientific imperative for your biological clock, but the religious imperative, I would argue, is be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. And it's this foundational text, again, in Genesis chapter one, there are multiple creation stories, not just in Genesis, but across Christian scripture that one could look at to make sense of what is the purpose of this life. But often we start with Genesis and we make a lot out of Genesis 1 and 2, and we want the stories to speak to one another. And so, be fruitful and multiply has historically been taken to mean, like, have babies and fill the earth. And not only is this good sense for if you think about the first humans, yes, there's an empty earth and the need to fill it. But also, if you think about in terms of evangelicalism, like, go out and make disciples. 
like you make disciples well by having a large family and then by ordering that family in such a way um, as to spread the faith and spread the number of people of faith. And that's one reading of be fruitful and multiply that I think contributes to this idea that there's a religious imperative. The other is I think people just, you kind of get the, you know, it's not Adam and Steve, it's Adam and Eve. And that's the, that's the kind of thinking I think that cares less about any biblical exegesis and is more concerned with like, just look at our bodies, just look at what they were made to do. Just look at what they want to do. You know, that's natural theology. That's looking at what we see in nature and what we see in human nature and extrapolating from that what we can know about God and God's intention and design. And I often started there myself when I was doing early theological work because humans fascinate me. Um, And I was an anthropology major in undergrad. And so it, it makes sense. I don't think there's no wisdom in natural theology. But I also was very formed during my divinity school days by people who said, but what if we started with God first? And again, we're human. So even when we start with God, we're starting with human assumptions about God. But what if we started with what we know about God's nature first and then mapped that out onto what our vocation was? And so what if we started by the fact that like we know God delights in us? What if we started with the fact that we know God is with us? Like, what if we started with the fact that we know God said in the form of Jesus, um, there's no greater love than to lay your life down for one's friend. Well, then you start might getting, you start to get a, a vocation of friendship, perhaps that's privileged above a vocation of reproduction. Then perhaps you start to get a vocation of spiritual family or supernatural family that's privileged above natural family. Um, and so I think that's, that's the stuff I sort of geek out on. And that's in the book too, is we have these biological ideas, but when you do, as you said earlier, start to map theological ideas onto them, um, it can be a lot to pull apart and to understand, well, what, what is the way to make sense of what we're designed for? How much can we really know? Um, and, and how much, Um, do we have to concede that like, we don't always know why our bodies want what they want. We don't always know what desires from God and what has been culturally conditioned and the way in which we test those desires is in community by asking other people. And part of that community is the communion of saints who we have witnessed to in their writings in the Bible. It's not the only authority, but it's part of the community. Be fruitful and multiply is really interesting. Do you happen to know if that is related to any of the like non-biblical sort of Mesopotamian literature that the Israelites would have known about uh, in the way that like Gilgamesh or, you know, those type of things, the code of Hammurabi that the, some of the Torah is commenting on or utilizing like i i wonder if that was in the water and the reason i wonder it is because my second sort of angle here is just i tend to think of scripture and other things phenomenologically i tend to think of it first from human experience and i ask what is it about the experience of the people who wrote this or who edited it or whatever that they found it true and useful like wisdom traditions and religions as like, you know, pre-scientific revolution 
peer review, <laughs> essentially. Like, w- what is it that people find helpful? If someone hears someone say, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, and they look around, and most of them have families, and they have this just indescribable experience when their children are born, which I had anyway. I don't. I know not every single person has it, but I think people tend to report it. You know, and then they go, oh, there's some divine rationale for that, like this, because it's obviously so good. It obviously pulls on all these things uh, in my soul or whatever. Then they go, yeah, let's keep that one. <laughs> and that one stays in. I, there's a lot of distance between the way I'm talking about this and the way that you were talking about this. I'm curious what, you know, if you could reach across that continuum and give me your thoughts. I don't know if there's as much distance as you think. Good. When I say I'm curious about how our cosmic stories map onto our personal stories rather than vice versa. Again, I still want to concede that cosmic stories come from human beliefs and meaning making and experiences. Yeah. And so for me, this is just the invitation to instead of starting with Adam and Eve, why don't we start with Jesus? Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of us start with Adam and Eve when we're trying to make sense of what the purpose of gender is. That's a naive, generally inerrancy based thing. That's like, well, the whole Bible is essentially without any problems. And so let's go like, where does it start the story? And every word in that it start the story is like super misleading. There is no it. There's no Bible. There's no univocal Bible. And then there's no start. You know, like the these are the stories that go back earliest in cosmological time and that the editors of the Hebrew Bible saw fit to put at the beginning. But yes. like that, you know, I so I'm much more comfortable in terms of from a Christian imagination perspective, starting with Christ uh, and the early church and stuff like that. I think that's great. So I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Great. Right. So that's what I mean when I say I want to I want to start with what do we know about God's nature? I'm talking about let's start with Jesus. Like, what do we know about Jesus? And let's let Jesus be the exegetical tool by which we understand Adam and Eve and our own human nature. So that's the first thing I want to say. I think maybe we're closer to where we like to start than farther apart. The question about be fruitful and multiply, I don't know off the top of my head how resonant that would have sounded with the wider culture that the early Hebrews were enmeshed in. What I do know um, is that some of my favorite scholars, Joel Baden and Candida Moss, have a beautiful book called Reconceiving Infertility, where they do some very cool work on Be Fruitful and Multiply. And I'm pretty convinced. I I like their interpretation. It makes sense to me. And, and what they say about be fruitful and multiply is that it was more about nation making than it was about individual baby making, that what we're seeing is, is a communal vocation and how they know that or how they argue that is one, the command, which I think is better read as a blessing, mm-hmm. be fruitful and multiply yeah. is only given in the presence of a woman once and not just a woman, but it it comes in the first chapter of Genesis where male and female, you know, he created them. And that's when they're told to be fruitful and multiply men and women um, and in between and beyond. 
And I think um, the next couple of people to get it are men who have already multiplied and in some cases are done multiplying. <laughs> you know, they argue yeah. this this in the ancient world, men were responsible for nation making and women were responsible for baby making. Like that was just that was the division of labor in a very crass way. Sure. And so you have to wonder if this was really about like, you need to use your loins for the Lord. Women should have been getting this command, but they weren't. So that's one indication that this was a political statement rather than a personal statement. And then the other thing they point out is much more often than be fruitful and multiply, you see God saying, I will make you fruitful yeah. and, I, and I, will, I will multiply you. And again, indicating that it's not um, something that you are to like set out to do as a project, but it's more of like, this is how the world works. Like I have created you to flourish. I have created you to create things of your own and to tend those and love those. And this is a communal thing you will all be a part of because I am a communal God who delights in my creation. And I think those two arguments that really, if you're going to read it literally, it's more about nation making than baby making. And then two, if you're going to read it in context with all of the other times, be fruitful and multiply has been said, then you've got to, you've got to concede that it's really, it's, it's much less of a command than it is a blessing. Um, and therefore it's not up to you to produce or reproduce to prove your worth. This is just the order of the universe that we live in. Dr. Thomas J. Ord, this is a little sponsorship thing. Like you are sponsoring uh, this episode and another episode or two for this degree you're offering through Northwind Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. But I don't want it to just be for prospective doctoral students. Like, let's talk a little bit about open and relational theology and make this brief conversation interesting for anybody. Cool? Sounds good. So let's just start with open and relational theology. It's been a while since I've probably had a theologian on to specifically talk about this type of theology. You've got a little FAQ on the website and you you give two defining features of open and relational theology. The first one is the claim that God experiences time moment by moment. That's the open part, the open theism. And the second is that God, us, and creation relate so that everyone gives and receives. That's the relational aspect. Anything else you want to say to sort of fill that out? That's the main ideas right there. Usually open and relational thinkers also want to emphasize uh, issues related to love, some kind of freedom amongst complex creatures like humans and agency and creation. There's some other emphases, but Really, what keeps kind of holds the broad tent together are those open and relational themes you mentioned. What are some of the main consequences of an open and relational approach to theology? How do those theologies end up looking different than classical theology, the the omnis, as they're sometimes called? Well, God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipowerful, you know, et cetera. 
I think there are a variety of, of implications, but most people will say that once an open and relational thinker describes God, the God so described ends up feeling much more engaged, hmm. ends up uh, feeling like what we do right matters in some way. It's not a controlling God, so it helps with the questions of suffering and evil. The open and relational God actually can respond to what we do, including our prayers. There's just lots of implications. In fact, I think most people who believe in God, who come from some kind of a Christian background, act in their piety as if God is open relational. Even if you ask them, they might say God is omnipotent, omniscient, and all those things in the classical meanings of the word. Yeah, so in that sense, it's a it's a scholarly and academic attempt to sketch out a version of God that more closely aligns with the everyday faith of most Christians over time, you might say. Yeah, nicely put. And it, I think it also, not just the everyday experiences of most Christians, just anybody, whether you're a theist or not. Hmm. And if you look, let's say, the last 50 years, and you look at the major figures in questions like about science and religion or about issues in ecology and the environment, the majority of them have come from an open and relational perspective, even if they didn't use those words to talk about it. So there are implications beyond just sort of the everyday normal person's experience that affect uh, the way we think about life in general. You use the word uncontrolling earlier, and, and you have a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God. Then you have a more a popular audience version of that called God Can't. Talk to me a little bit about uncontrolling love versus is controlling love even love? Uh, in our mm -hmm. in our general speech, we tend to not think it is. Yeah. I mean, open relational theologians have a variety of ways to talk about God's power and love and the relationship between those two. Uh, my own preferred way is to say that God's love is inherently uncontrolling. God simply can't control anyone or even anything because God loves everyone and everything. And divine love is always or inherently, essentially uncontrolling. And that, of course, helps with the questions of suffering, but it also helps answer questions like related to revelation. You know, if if God exists and is a God of love, and it's important that we have some sort of idea about who this God is, what this God wants of us, etc., you'd think this God would give a crystal clear message right. to everybody. <laughs> and right. yet, that doesn't seem to be the way things work, not only personally, but when we look at the, the sacred text of any uh, religious tradition. Yeah, in that sense, I find that open and relational theology accords better with the facts on the ground as they appear to me to be, which is that there are none of these sort of perfect accountings, perfect records, inerrant texts in any meaningful sense. What we yeah. rather get is a collection of texts that are beautiful, that reflect, you know, incredible human experience, deep wisdom, you know, the, the teachings of Jesus and sort of the understandings of the early church about his life reflected in those gospels. We get just mm -hmm. in insane beauty and depth, but not like 
in our modern sense, these error-free manuscripts. And so right. to think of it more like, well, look, if God is inspiring in, in some meaningful sense, the creation of these accounts, they're differing with each other a bit, yet obviously something comes through them that has been, you know, the right. foundation of a 2 billion adherent religion worldwide and possibly the most famous person that's ever lived, right? Like that does for me line up better than, oh, God in his omni power and everything uh, organize these perfect accountings of the life of Jesus. And I'm, I, maybe I'm being a little unfair here and, yeah. and my, my stripes are showing. Well, I, I think you're, I think you're right. I, I like to say that open and relational theology accounts for scripture. And here I'll just refer just to Christian scripture accounts for Christian scripture, not only the content but the shape and form of Scripture better than the alternatives for the kinds of reasons that you've mentioned. And it also suggests that if this God is a God of love who doesn't control, it suggests a kind of ethic for you and me and how we might live our lives, right. that trying to control others just might not be the loving way to get along in life. Yeah, I like that. So, you know, this is the first of these kind of sort of sponsored messages that I've done, Tom. And so listeners might be like, oh, that's that's kind of different and maybe weird. I don't know, maybe even <laughs> off-putting. But listeners of the show for a while will recognize you because you've been on multiple times. And mm -hmm. they'll know how highly I think of you and your work. And also a lot mm, of them will thanks. have will have heard your sort of personal role in my acknowledgement of my liberal theological intuitions through becoming friends mm -hmm. in person and uh, and getting to know you. So that's why I'm comfortable having you here and it doesn't feel like shilling or anything like that. <laughs> let's let's spend a few minutes talking nuts and bolts about the program for people who might be interested in, in a doctor of theology and ministry. You guys do something called the Oxford method. What is that? It's a method by which instead of having courses in which there's a bunch of students maybe going together in a cohort, taking a prescribed set of classes with a set syllabus that everyone reads, right. it means that students work one-on-one -on -one with me as the director, and each syllabus for each class is tailor-made for the background and interest of each student. Wow. And the classes are not set up on a, you know, like set schedule throughout the year, but we're flexible in how we can put the classes together. And it's fully online, right? There's no residency requirement. Exactly. No residency requirement. Uh, you know, we have some things that people can do in person if they like, but none of that's required. It's weird talking in this kind of addy kind of way, but I'm in yeah. grad school right now. I'm getting a different kind of a doctorate, a PsyD. Uh, but the cost of your doctoral program is significantly less expensive on the order of like less than a third, uh, as far as my, as far as I can tell how it all pencils out, maybe around a third. Um, how did you get it to be so inexpensive? Yeah, the whole program is a little over 20 grand. You know, it helps when we're not paying for property, right. buildings, and lots of administrators. So um, that's how we can do it. You know, the online platform is different, and many people find it convenient because of the reason that they don't have to get up and move, but also because it's far more cost-effective. Yeah, that's more like, uh, 
one sixth <laughs> or one seventh. Right? <laughs> it's a little, you know, psychology is different. They, you know, they assume sure. it's like med school. They assume you're going to have this high earning potential when you get out, and that's all kind of baked in. And there are reasons that a lot of it needs to be in person. And anyway, who cares? We don't have to litigate that. But that's just awesome that that's super affordable. Maybe give us a sense of like what are some of these kind of tailored topics or lenses or approaches that some current students are working on to give people an idea of like, hey, how this might be able to go for them? Yeah, the way the program works is that for the first half of it or so, uh, students are reading a, a variety of texts related to open relational process theology and the topics that really concern them or interest them. And then about halfway through, they turn to start writing a dissertation. And I help them in that process as well. But current uh, dissertation topics include things that are a little more theoretical, like uh, comparing the ideas of Alfred North Whitehead and Rene Girard. Uh, some are more practical, like uh, looking at what therapy might look like if God is open and relational. Wow. If if we move through time, does you know some people think of therapy and healing as re- reverting back to some pristine state in the past? Interesting. Is that yeah? It doesn't make any sense if we're moving through time. Yeah, that's so, cool. Yeah, another woman is currently working on the difficult passages, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that portray God as wrathful, unloving, and violent. And Mm -hmm. how can we make sense of those if God is uncontrolling love? Uh, Another student is working on what open and relational theology looks like uh, as it addresses LGBTQ concerns. Uh, So there's there's kind of a, a pretty wide range. Some are more, you might think, theoretical kinds of writings. Others are really aimed at uh, the person on the street or the person in the pew. That's cool. Now I, I I might need to do some sort of follow-up episode where I, in a couple years, I talk with all those students about their their work. (laughs) Uh, Each of those sounds very cool to me, especially that therapy one. That's, I'm going to be kicking that around. Tom, thanks for your time. I'm going to put a link in the show notes uh, to the site, but what's the address if people are are interested in looking into this more? The easiest thing to do is to uh, Google Open and Relational Theology Northwind Theological Seminary. And Northwind and, is one uh, word. Yeah, Northwind is one word, correct. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tom. So this is like an argument or a theory for why the church never seems to really look like the early church and the gospels that whatever becomes popular about the church, we will always look at the Bible and go, this doesn't look like that. Here's the argument is that the people who wrote the gospels, who were there for the gospels, who wrote the early epistles, these people thought that the world as they knew it was ending And there are various ways of understanding what exactly they thought. Did they think that the earth was going to blow up? Did they think that at least like some imperial power was going to come wipe them out or that some Messiah would wipe out the imperial power and things would be so different? You know, did they think that the moon was literally going to turn to blood or is that figurative? At any rate, they thought something big is coming and going about life as usual does not make sense right now. We see it in, in Jesus. We see it in Paul. 
But that's the thrust of the New Testament. And secondly, these people were being actively persecuted in one way or another. Both of those do not lend themselves to describing the world or God or whatever the way that most of the actual Christians have lived since then, which is to say, we live in ordinary time. Most of us live, you know, 50 to 80 years. The world as we know it does not end in our lifetimes. We certainly don't want it to. We don't ask for world wars. We don't uh, we don't tend to ask for evangelicals exempted. We don't tend to ask for Jesus to return and end the universe. The, the people who are more on the margins, the persecuted, the people who think God's up to something here, I think that they get at true things. And that's why it ends up in scripture. But that message will essentially never be a good fit for people in the middle of the bell curve. It's going to be a better fit for people outside the middle of the bell curve. The Mm. fact that you in your study have found all of this theological artillery for your low femme, not that interested in having my own kids, whatever. I'm like, that makes perfect sense to me because the Bible is written for you and, and it's kind of not written for me as much in that sense. I'm like a comfortable upper middle class white collar guy who really loves having kids and wants a very smooth life. That's what I actually <laughs> want. That is what I want. Like Aristotle speaks more to me than the Bible does. He's like, Hey, have a little bit of money, have some social capital. Don't have too much money. Don't eat or drink too much. Enjoy your life. I'm like, yeah, Aristotle, that's the kind of life I'm going for. So therefore, on this argument, the institutional church that like many people go to, that average citizens go to, is never going to look like the Bible. And we will always need people like you, people like Dorothy Day, people like my friend Danielle Mayfield to agitate and remind us that the church is not here to maintain the status quo. But at the same time, if I have a client who is living a sort of a more status quo life and they have three kids, I actually don't want violent disruption of their lives for their kids' sake. Like I, I want their kids to have a safe community. I want them to go to college or whatever they need to do. You know, so there's a real tension there between the, the world of the text that is not for the middle of the bell curve and the life of believers who are mostly in the middle of the bell curve. Am I on to something? What is your opinion? I want to know, how do you make sense of that for your own life? That Oh, it's that, dissonant. <laughs> I think that theory makes sense. Contrarians, I think, certainly can find themselves at home in Christianity and in the life of Jesus. But I still think like I would have found Jesus an asshole um, when people are like, oh, I don't like Christians, but I like Jesus. And I'm like, have you read the things yeah. that Jesus said, like, I'm pretty sure um, I I would have like come home from from a sermon and done the same thing I do when I come home from sermons now. Not all, but come home and say, like, what was that? And man, that really pissed me off. And man, that was really problematic. And woman, I don't know about that. And human, like, let's talk. Like, I just think even this idea that those of us on the margins, that Jesus is like really tolerable for us, is laughable. If you read Jesus clearly, he sort of seems to subvert at every moment, even 
the people who thought they were in by virtue of being out, right? Like you think about the Jews and telling the Jews that like, actually, I've also come for the Gentiles. And they're like, fuck, I thought this was like our one thing. And I feel like that could be, right? You could look at me and say, yeah, like I'm like, yeah, I've got some great, great theology for why Jesus loves the child free. And then Jesus is like, yeah, but I came to like save parents too. And I'm like, fuck. That might be more about tribal identification. So if you identify too strongly with your tribe, then Jesus is going to piss you off on that aspect of Jesus will piss you off because he will never stop at your tribe. He's also going to love the people in the other tribe. Right. But in terms of like the more just kind of like the nuts and bolts of the life that Jesus lived, the apostles, Paul, you know, it's not bougie. They didn't live Uh a bougie existence and a bougie existence is a bougie existence where I can choose how many hours of pro bono counseling I want to give, where I can choose the ratio of charitable work out of my normal week. That's exactly the kind of life that I want. It's in fact the kind of life that like the American Psychological Association recommends that people have, because if you don't do that, you burn out and then you stop being a psychologist altogether and other things like that. You can read you know, secondary traumatization, all these things. There is a lot of evidence for the Aristotle, more comfortable way of doing things, uh, depending on where you're willing to look. And then you've got Jesus kind of agitating that. To be clear, not always. Like, I think that that universal acceptance, hey, I'm here for the Gentiles too. Like, a lot of those principles actually fit really well with my, the bougie life that I want to have and 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 stuff. But it's, I don't know. It's like, I'm recognizing the tension. Do you want to want differently? Uh, in a lot of ways, I do. Yes. The the things that I'm saying that I find myself wanting, I do feel guilt and shame about some of those some of the time or even a lot of the time. I have like sort of guardrails in terms of, you know, what's too much luxury, what's too much comfort, how much is too much money, stuff like that. And I, I don't want to go beyond those. Uh, but like, I don't want to live with everything in common, like the early church. (laughs) So, you know, like some communal living. Yeah. I'm actually, I think that's really cool and planning to do some with some family members. And my growing edge is learning to be okay. Wanting what other people want. Mm. Right. Because I'm much more comfortable with this idea of having everything in common and asking like, how do my personal choices bear on the common good and really wanting to trouble both the feminist notion, my body, my choice. I don't want to like enter a minefield. I absolutely support abortion rights um, and it's complicated. And I know that that doesn't offer a lot of clarity, but what I want to trouble is that it is, it is always and only a private decision. Yeah. And on on the other hand, right, the evangelical idea that that religion isn't meant to be political, that is mostly about personal um, convictions. And if you know, you know, you don't need any evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I want to trouble both of those assumptions all of the time and ask, like, but how do my choices bear on my neighbor? And I want to ask that because I see, again, that that's the order of the universe, like that you look at like the trees and I think the trees are a really interesting like paradox because like they have shown that there are mother trees 
and that those mother trees do look out for their own kin first. Like they send resources to them first. But what happens when there is damage in the forest or there is need for repair or communal thriving, they also know how to send nutrients and resources to trees not their own. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's the order of the universe. Of course, you want to resource your own people and the people who are living under your roof, whether they're your biological family or not. They're the people you know best. They're the people closest to you. It would make sense that those are the people that you know how to resource and want to resource and love resourcing. And all flourishing is mutual. And so how do we actually learn from the order of the universe that it doesn't stop with the people under your roof. It doesn't stop with the people that share your DNA, but there's actually something that happens, especially during times of suffering, which I would argue we're not, uh, I'm not going to make a persecution argument, um, but I would argue that the world feels really fucked, apocalyptic sometimes. And I can completely understand and support people who do not want to have children because of that fact and that fact alone. Mm -hmm. And I don't find that not hopeful. I actually find that like a very okay response and, and and it shows hope in something else. Yeah. It's kind of like Jesus and Paul expecting the imminent end of the world as they knew it. So let me give you an argument that no one in particular is necessarily making, and yes, this is a straw man. It is meant to be a sort of extreme left argument. Okay. A kind of a constellation of claims. And it would go something like this. Any biological limit you think there is, let me tell you, I got an Instagram influencer who will tell you it is not a limit. So have kids as late as you want. You know, IVF is getting better and better and better. You know, maybe do it at 50 you were born a man or you were born a woman. Here are the medications we have. And and to be clear, personally, I do, I believe gender dysphoria is very real. I believe that I know people who have benefited from transitioning. So I'm not, to be clear, I, Dan, am not uh, saying we shouldn't have that, but there's a, there's like a, Hey, there's no gender. There's maybe some biological sex, but even that we can change. You could extend this to sort of open border policy, which might be morally, uh, the best thing ever, we should sacrifice ourselves for our neighbors to the South, but there might be realities, psychological, financial, economic realities. You know, you hear what I'm saying? There's sort of like a maximalist position that says, you know what? You do you, dream your dreams, you can be whatever. And it's usually what it will take to get you there is technology, money, and access to that technology. Uh, and being completely unencumbered by any of society's expectations, whatever. I think that this is a a sort of a silly worldview that is naive to just the natural limits of having a physical body, a finite body with certain genes, uh, whatever. And, And that's the kind of thing I do worry about as someone on the left myself. I'm more prone to that. I'm not prone at all to the kind of opposite version of that, which is saying, God made us this way. It's black and white and you're either black or white. Like, well, fuck that. That's obviously false. I'm not tempted by that at all. I'm more tempted by this kind of caricature left version. Any thoughts on that? (laughs) I'm not tempted by either. I don't think. I make a claim in the book that limits are how love multiplies. Hmm. And I think limits are 
gorgeous and beautiful and people should be encouraged to heed them. I think that is one of, that is one of the reasons I chose not to have biological children um, is because I did the research because that is also my love language. Um, and I did it as an undergrad studying gender along with anthropology and saw the writing on the wall that like women can't have it all. Mm. Like that phrase is some fucked up bullshit that is really destructive to women's mental health. Mm. So is the idea of intensive parenting that it is your primary job to make sure your kid has the best stuff. Oh, um, yep. That is really destructive. Even the belief that women are the essential parent is bad for m- women's health. The belief that parenting is tough is bad for women's health. like this idea that like parenting is the toughest job in the world and you should like tough things. You should have no limits and be able to do the toughest things. And that is where your worth will come from is really bad for humanity Yeah, and particularly bad for women. And, and I remember reading Sheldon Vonnegut's book, a severe mercy where he talks about he and his wife, Davey opting out of children because they saw that in the course of modern life, it was separating for men and women. And it was harder on women than it was men. And they were like, nope, not doing that. And that was one of the appeals of fostering and adopting for my husband and I. Again, we didn't set out to become parents. We set out to become community members mm-hmm. and just sort of missed that children were 95% of that particular endeavor. But it was amazing to start parenting from a place of non-biological differentiation. Now that didn't mean there were no gender differences. Our girls had far different expectations for me than they did for him. So Mm -hmm. there were lots of other gender assumptions and skills and gifts that came into that, but it was actually really beautiful. I know, I know parents talk about, I know mothers talk about how gorgeous it is to have their child rely on their body for food and shelter. And it was also gorgeous to not have my children rely on my body for food and shelter because my husband and I were Mm -hmm. able to have a certain level of partnership from day one that we might not have been able to have temporarily, at least if I had birthed the child and he had held my hand. And so I think all of that's to say limits are, they're like the banks of a river, like without them, I don't know how I would know how to flow. I don't know how I would mark the decisions that are mine and mine alone to make. I just, I'm, I'm neither one of those outcomes, neither one of those outlooks you describe sounds appealing. I am very much, mm-hmm. let me, let me make decisions based off my limits. Let me celebrate my limits. And again, let me remember that at the end of the day, I think the universal Christian vocation is to abide. Like that's it. My life is not about what I produce or reproduce. My life is not about how I make my mark. My life is not about what kind of legacy I lead. My life is about abiding. My life is about rest as resistance. My life is about the revolution of relaxation. And I don't mean that in like a luxurious kind of way. It does lead into this thing I was going to say about limits or how love multiplies, which is a phrase I really love. I was just going to give an example of sort of a, a more rightward claim and a more leftward claim, broadly speaking, that I think that applies to both of them. And I think that they're both true. So on the left, you've got all the talk. It's just more common on the left in more therapeutically minded communities about boundaries and self-care and that, you know, enmeshed families, uh, formerly known as codependent, 
you know, that there can there can be a push for psychologically unhealthy people to want no limits. They want full access to people in their lives because they are insufficient by themselves. And without that other person there, uh, they don't know how to be in the world. And it can be loving to set a boundary and set a limit. Uh, in fact, it can multiply love by doing that because it's in the best interest of the other person. Conservative people will argue this about marriage, that you make a lifelong commitment, uh, even if that's taking your best shot at it, you do it in front of people, you do it in a community that mutually agrees to support the institution of marriage. Obviously, there are exceptions that I would hope that those communities would have around abuse and other things like that. But like generally speaking, if you're in a, a, a society, a subculture, even just a community of 50 people, you know, that support that those limits of like, you know what? I chose to love you. And now that we've had a child, I am choosing to be in this family and support that child. Uh, that is definitely how love multiplies. I think in my experience and in, um, broadly speaking in human experience. And that's why relative monogamy has sort of flourished. I think is one argument is that it has actually proven to work pretty well. Uh, even though it's, uh, has many, of course, issues uh, and in different times and places. So what do you think of that sort of applying of your phrase to sort of broadly speaking, left and right um, talking points? I love how you're always giving left and right talking points. Like what, what a skill to see all the sides or to see something other than sides. I'm glad that you appreciate that because some people don't. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I always want to choose like option C and not talk to your specific talking points. Oh, please um, do. That's I, great. I mean, when I hear when I hear those two applications of limits, yes, yes, those both make sense to me. And what my brain is starting to do is beginning to like have the yes and, and there's something limiting about knowing your limits sometimes, right? There's something limiting about knowing your limits. Yes, because if you only ever do the things you know you can do. Then, then right. what is growth? Like what is risk? Mm -hmm. What is to get real biblical, the power perfected in weakness. If you are always naming your weaknesses and not entering into situations where, you know, they will be tapped or invited or expressed. And I think that's part of why we ended up fostering, or that was like the, the, the magic and the mystery and the meddling, the holy meddling of fostering. Um, is that there's nothing about it that seemed like a good fit for, for who my partner and I are, except for the fact that we like fancy ourselves like good neighbors. <laughs> like we had a lot of ideology yeah. that made sense for why mm -hmm. we would do that. But when we got to the class, all of a sudden there was this like loaves and fishes experience of like, I thought this was the energy level I had. And now I'm beginning to see that like, there is some mysterious energy that I did not budget for that is coming up in me for this endeavor. And I think if I had only looked at my life and said, mm, but like you only have two hours of good time in you a day yeah. or, mm, yeah. but like, you don't like loud noises or like mm, you wake up at 10 30 AM every morning, right? Like these are not things that are traditionally compatible with parenting. I would have opted out before I ever knew what it felt like to do something I was wholly incapable of doing. And I do think that's what's magical about parenting for a lot of people is they actually feel more limited than ever 
and feel like they have more love than ever. And I think they get confused in thinking that can only happen through parenting, but it is a reliable way for that to happen for a lot of people. It is reliable. Fantastic. So I want to talk about my experience, not my wife's experience, but my experience of eventually having a son. And I had been ethically and ideologically, uh, as we sometimes say in therapy world, shooting all over myself uh, about, well, we should adopt or foster if we have fertility issues. That's what people like us should do. And through a conversation with a couple friends and some prayer, I recognized what I want, actually, God, is for a scientist to help us have our own child, or at least I want to try. That's what I want to happen. And that's the route we went and it succeeded. And having him was, I mean, first of all, it was uncontested the best day of my life. Um, no, no shade on my wedding day, but like not, not even a chance. And the experience of having him uh, that day and many, many times since when I told you earlier, I like to start phenomenologically. I, I, I tend to, these days, I tend to think of things through the lens of human experience. And the experience of having a child for me has been the most transformative experience of my life, more so than rededicating my life to Christ. Or, you know, I didn't, I never really became a Christian. I sort of prayed the prayer the first time, but I was raised a Christian. No faith commitment I've made has had a bigger impact on my life than having a child. Nothing in my life has. I don't think getting married had a bigger impact than having a child. And that impact is is so soaked through with love and joy and, you know, that cliche of it's your heart walking around outside your body, all that stuff. All that stuff rings true for me. And I think that a lot of what my, my guess is that a lot of the, the social and cultural scripts that you critique in your book, which are worth critiquing, flow out of the fact that people just have this huge fucking shift in their experience. I describe it to people as like going from black and white to color. It's not that I didn't see a bunch of great black and white films beforehand that I wouldn't recommend to people. I toured the world in a rock band. I went to 30 countries. I met my wife. I had great experiences. But there is a element of life that is now different. It feels more full. It feels like a fundamental change, like a phase change from ice to liquid, like that kind of a thing. And as someone who participated in experiencing really, really heartbreaking infertility for many years, uh, I recognize that it could be deeply saddening or even hurtful to hear someone like me who had success because of our privilege and money and technology, again, implicating myself, if someone doesn't have access to that or it hasn't gone that way or they did have the money, but it didn't work, you know, whatever, like I get it. But also I think that that's where a lot of this stuff comes from is people are so transformed by the experience. They'll reach for whatever language is strong to match their strong experience. Okay. I've been talking for a while. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to say how cool that you experienced that. That's it. <laughs> that sounds really cool. I have more to say, okay. but I just well, want to I, I just want to start with how cool and I want to start with also by acknowledging just how painful that sounds to have struggled 
with infertility and the questions and the unknowing if this thing you really wanted would come to fruition. And that just, that sounds really painful and really cool on the other, on the other side of it. I appreciate that. It has been both. It's, it's one of the two greatest sources of suffering in my life. And also Soren is the greatest joy of my life thus far. And it's both. And so I think for every person there is that has the experience you have. And again, thank you for speaking for yourself. Um, I think that's just one of like my, my biggest, I'm not great at takeaways, but if I had a takeaway from my book, it would be like, just speak for yourself. Just use I statements. Like a lot of this, this would be far less painful and less shaming. Um, if people didn't assume these things were universally true, but were able to say, yeah, like I was a cliche in this moment, (laughs) or this was my particular not majority experience in this moment, whatever it is, the I statements are powerful. But in the book, I talk about this being the mother of all mother scripts. You don't know love until you become a mother. And And I think what, to your point, yes, there are people and maybe even a lot of people who find that to be personally true. And that is why writing this book felt so important because I do not find it to be personally Mm -hmm. true. I find it offensive to my former self who I want to look at her and say, baby girl, you were living in Technicolor. Mm -hmm. Don't let anyone tell you that your life only became fully formed until you became a parent. And I think that's particularly can be particularly damaging for people who have historically been um, made to feel less than human. There's a long history of women being considered not human until they became someone else's oh, human. Oh gosh, yeah, you're hundred percent right. And so, right. like, I'm yeah. I'm bringing different things into that narrative than you yep. are, right? And so, I want to say in this book for those people who haven't experienced it and maybe never will. Hey, here's just another voice in the wilderness telling you, I don't think you're missing out. Even if your life feels like it's in black and white now, there are actually a lot of things that might be that technicolor moment for you. Um, And parenting could be one of them or it could not. You're not guaranteed. And that's a big risk to take if you don't want it or you're doing it just because you have a lack of imagination for other ways in which you could give your life in meaningful ways to other people and other relationships. And then I felt like there was a two, but maybe that was already <laughs> built in there. Yeah, I just I just want people to hear that from the childless side. Yeah. Hey, here's someone telling you, you might not be missing out. I don't think I was missing out before I became a parent. And then from the parenting side, um, I also want to say to parents, it's okay if you too didn't have this magical moment. It's okay if you too find parenting to not be the identity that is most meaningful, to not be the thing that most makes you sing, to be really difficult and disappointing and full of lots of grief. Like I think people underestimate how many parents regret having children. We don't have good numbers for it, but the research in Western countries would say somewhere close to 14%. And we don't let those people talk about it. Um, We don't let them talk about it without worry or concern. And so Like, yeah, you can love your children and not love parenting. Like, I also want to say that you can love your children and not love parenting um, and wish that you had done something else with your life and and still be an adult that your kids can count on and still be an adult that delights in them, even if you don't delight in the world you found yourself in right now or the season you found yourself in right now. 
So I think that's what just felt important about writing this book is that like, Dan, good for you. And I'm sure there are books that, that make you feel good for you. Um, that that is a common good experience that makes for a good life in this world. And I just wanted to write a book that told the people who opted out or aged out or didn't have the resources to have the kind of family they wanted, that there are still a lot of ways to live in Technicolor. And I want to tell the people on the other side, if you if you did this thing that you thought would would make your life happy and fulfilled and fold and be the greatest thing you ever did, and it wasn't, or it's just a good thing you did, but not the best, like that's okay too. And I will, I will give you the caveat that I give in the book. I didn't become a biological parent. So I'm a little bit of an unreliable source on like all of the things like hormones can do. And I've talked to adoptive parents who have felt the same way you felt mm -hmm. meeting their child for the first yeah. time. And I've talked to biological parents who haven't felt it. Um, so I know, yeah. again, this is like the bell curve, right? Maybe a lot of people have, maybe the majority of people have. But what I want to say is it's okay. You can still live a really good, big, beautiful life if that's not your experience. Uh, I agree with, I, I think, every single thing you said in response. I do want to say, like, you don't know love until you become a mother or a parent. Like, that statement's false. Uh, I did know love <laughs> before <laughs> my son was born. You know, I knew love before I fell in love with my wife. I Different kinds of love, you know. I mean, I think the thing that that sort of bouncing through my big brain <laughs> when I was listening to you talk is one of the most formative theological books about pregnancy that I've read. And the only book I read that made me want to become pregnant was a book by Sarah Job called Creating with God. Mm. And in her last chapter, epilogue, whatever, she addresses that persnickety verse in Timothy um, where it says women will be saved by childbearing. Yes. And, and she said, listen, the, the truth of the gospel is not that childbearing is a way is the only way to know God, but that it's a way of knowing God at all. And, and I think that's what you're saying is it's not that this flood of hormones is the only way to know love, um, but it's pretty cool. It's one of the ways yeah. of knowing love. And again, the problem is not that you can celebrate this aspect, this life-changing aspect of your body and your family and your relationships. The problem is what I call maternal exceptionalism that's very closely aligned with American exceptionalism yeah. and is the idea that mother love is superior to other forms of love. And that is not Christian. That is does not have theological support in the Orthodox tradition. And that is just about as bad as American exceptionalism has been for the planet and its people. It's the middle of the bell curve curve people grabbing scripture and selectively using it to remake the Bible into a book that it primarily exists to prop up the people in the middle of the bell curve and not the people further out which I yeah. think is primarily who the Bible is for. I, I love that you're using the text to speak outside the middle of the bell curve. I, I mostly think that's what the text is there for. And hmm. in that sense, it's not really for me. I think really where, where the text speaks to me is to say, okay, you know that feeling you've got for Soren, that love extends universally. 
That's the good Samaritan. Oh shit. Okay. Now where's that going to challenge me? Right? Like that's, yes. and like you're saying, it's a way of knowing love. It's a way of knowing God. Well, and I would argue that other love is the highest form of love in Christianity, not mother love, right? And mother love and parent love falls under that umbrella. Absolutely. But if you are looking for the umbrella that covers over all of the ways in which we can gather our resources and share them with one another, it's other love. That's the agape. Yeah. That's the... (laughs) again, um, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. People are like, Hey, doesn't that prove that like parental love is the order of the universe? And you're like, yeah, but did you read it? Like actually God so loved his only son that he privileged other love. Mm -hmm. And he, cause that's what the verse uses. He privileged other love above familial love when he made a choice about how to use his resources. And Mm -hmm. that's a pretty weird, powerful thing to put your faith in. One last thing here. It's like, I think what happens is those of us who have kids, we're given a bunch of free drugs. Okay. (laughs) And we're given them by our bodies on the occasion of giving birth to a child or seeing your partner give birth to a child. Yes. And you might maybe speak for yourself because I will say there are a lot of people that also get postpartum depression. Oh, oh, for sure. Don't feel the flood of that. Yeah. But I just, I mean, expand that out to the first few years, you know, even adoptive parents, like you've got this little bundle and for 90 plus percent of us, we're given a bunch of free drugs. Okay. Uh, Reliably, you know, they know, they even know which transmitters they are, you know, it's oxytocin and it's whatever. Okay. So we get all these free drugs. And then it's like saying, see, aren't drugs great? (laughs) Like you could stop there and say, hooray for us, go drugs. Or you could say, oh, does this point to something beyond, right? It's sort of like to, to make it, to use the text in service of the middle bell curve folks like myself is akin to saying, congratulations, you're doing drugs rather than to say like, (laughs) The beauty you experience when you're doing drugs, that is a compass point for you to then orient your life around that and come habit and virtue and make decisions. And like, what is that pointing to? Not the thing itself. That's another way of maybe throwing some theology into the to the biology. I think that makes a lot of sense. And yes, I think that's always the question. How can you open your desire like a door is what I like to say. Like, all right, yeah, we want what we want. And sometimes we can choose to want different and sometimes we don't or we can't. And so how do you use the things that you desire and the the, the drugs that (laughs) are giving you these magical experiences? And how do you say, okay, now how can I use this? How can I use this for the ideologies, the principles, the cosmic stories I'm most compelled by? Like, how can I now pattern my life off that using the particular desires and drugs that I'm on? Mm-hmm. Aaron Lane, thank you so much. There'll be a link to the book as well as your personal website, which I think is very good, by the way. Nice work. Oh, cool. Um, Thanks. And uh, anything else you want to say to folks? I want to say abide wherever you find yourself. Whether you find yourself with children, without children, loving parenting, hating parenting, child-free and happy, childless and grieving, like abide, 
Like that's you're you're doing it. If you're abiding, if you are surviving a life and paying attention, you're doing it. Also, any excuse to have you back on because this was really, really fun. I think everybody can tell how much fun I had. This was so awesome. I don't get to nerd out like this often. Mostly people are like, stop talking about that. Why do they interview you then? What is the Oh, point? these are like, these are like oh. my friends. These are like my friends. You don't get to do enough. You don't do many podcasts. I do do podcasts, but not super theological ones, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah. Most people are like, just tell me about your kids. And what do you find hard about parenting? And I like talking about that too. I can tell you all the things I find hard about parenting. Yeah, that's not this show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad it's not. Yeah. Well, we'll talk again uh, someday because that was just too good. Thanks, Aaron. Oh, thanks, Dan. So good hearing your story, too. (laughs) 